Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our series through the book of Revelation. The Revelation is called an apocalypse, which means a revealing. And it's through this series that we want to better see who it is that we are serving as we celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that he's Lord over, um, that he's Lord of heaven and earth? What does it mean that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And how do we reverse engineer that into our lives so that we more faithfully live in response to that reality? That's kind of what we're tracking with as we move through this series. One of the things that has really encouraged me as a dad is all four of my kids have been big readers at their different stages of development. They own lots of books. They trade lots of books with their friends. They take out lots of books out of the library. They read widely and uh, they really get excited about um, not just books, but book series and being able to all read that together. And you have the younger ones playing catch up with the older ones because they want to be able to enter into these conversations about characters and scenes and events that they hear about through them And it's pretty amazing to watch in front of your eye this obsession with stories play out. It reminds me of a quote by Jonathan Gottschall, who's a, um, uh, he's not a believer, but he writes, he wrote a book called uh, The Storytelling Animal a number of years ago. And he makes this observation. He says, humans are storytelling animals. We thrill to to an astonishing multitude of fictions on pages, stages, and on screens. Murder stories, sex stories, war stories, conspiracy stories, true stories, and false. We are, as a species, addicted to stories. But the addiction runs deeper than we think. We can can walk away from our books and our screens, but we can never walk away from story. For humans, story is like gravity, an inescapable field of force that influences everything but is so omnipresent that we hardly notice it. Now, there's kind of two ways that you understand why humanity has taken every measure possible to tell and retell important stories. One view says, well, it's because it's a reflexive um, attempt to piece together some semblance of meaning or purpose in an otherwise purposeless universe. So we kind of trick ourselves into thinking that our lives are the playing out of some kind of story or these patterns that show up reveal a bigger purpose or a larger truth, but they really don't. These are just meaning making exercises that um, are adaptive, but ultimately not grounded in anything true. A Christian worldview, however, says Actually, the reason why we create stories is because we were created by a God who didn't just create stuff. He created uh, all things with a telos, with with a purpose, with a goal, and that there is a script to life. Jesus is called the author of our salvation. He's the author of life. Um, um, Peter talks about that in the book of Acts. Our creator has infused story into the very fabric of reality. We live in a storied world. And what that means is we can't not 
think about our own lives, our marriages, our relationships with our friends, our faith, outside of the context of kind of like an ongoing story. And we have all these different stories in our lives, right? We have the story of maybe um, how we've arrived at this point in our career or this point in our life or this point in our marriage or the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and our identity. But all of these stories need to cohere. They need to be held within one larger story that gives all of our sub-stories sort of significance and sense. And scripture actually proclaims itself to be not just a book of wisdom, not just a book of morality, not just a book of guidance, but a book that reveals God's big story. And it's that story that when we discover it and when we deepen our understanding of it, all of our stories begin to make more and more sense. God's big story is the story that all of our sub-stories can fit within and begin to cohere and have integrity. And there's the sense of being like, yeah, my life does matter. This, I, My story isn't just a fragmentary subjective experience. It actually is a part of something bigger, something important. You could summarize the Bible story with four words, creation, fall, redemption, glorification. Good creator God creates all that is. Sinful humanity turns in all kinds of ways, rebellion, indifference, pride, and says, we'll, we'll live life our own ways. Thank you very much. And so we're now under the power and penalty of sin, but instead of leaving us that way, God seeks to redeem us. He seeks to save us, to help us, to take us out of that place, out of out from under sin's power and enslavement and into a new kind of life. And eventually God is going to glorify all of creation, all those who are have been redeemed through Jesus. And what's really cool about the book of Revelation is that maybe more so than any book in the entire Bible, it gives us so many, sometimes small, sometimes big windows and perspectives into what does glorification look like? When, when human history comes to an end, when God's purposes for all of history reach their zenith, their final point, what, what's that going to mean? What is it going to look like? Revelation answers that question. It gives us a vision for what Jesus is going to uh, establish when he fully establishes his kingdom on earth as it is currently established in heaven. So it's a really important book because it tells us the end of the story. And that the end of the story is powerful and it's good and it's inspiring and it's sobering and it allows you now, especially if you're walking through parts of your own story that are dark, difficult, um, from your vantage point without hope, the book of the revelation can give you new eyes to see, can instill new hope, new confidence that the savior that you are following and have entrusted your life to is going to lead you into a glorious future. It's an amazing, amazing book. Let's pray as we prepare for today. God, as we open up your word and look at Revelation chapter 14, I just pray that our eyes would be open to your truth.
that you indeed would reveal yourself to us in a fresh and new way. And that this text, although loaded with symbolism and maybe strange at first pass, would be opened up to us so that we can see its relevance to our lives as individuals and as a church. We love you, God. We give you the praise and glory. Thank you that um, the story that you have pulled us into is a good one. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are in chapter 14 uh, of the book of Revelation, and that is in the midst of a series of visions and signs, which kind of interrupts the seven trumpets and the seven bowl judgments. And if you think about the last two chapters, they're sort of a, a really very tight encapsulation of the drama of Scripture. In chapter 12, you had the, the woman with the dragon and her offspring and her being hunted by the dragon, but God delivering them. And that's kind of a microcosm of the spiritual battle that's taking place, but shown from a heavenly perspective. Then in chapter 13, you have two beasts rising up out of the sea, attempting to deceive people and to turn people away from God and presenting an alternative kingdom, an alternative political reality, an alternative um, religious reality where the um, well really the 666 I think is is centering on the worship of humanity or, or, or human like uh, it's a turning inward it's an idolatrous system and that's kind of describing what often the spiritual war looks like from an earthly perspective and then if you read those two chapters you might be wondering if you didn't know what was coming after like how's this going to end in anything good? Like we've just heard about Satan who's pictured as this dragon and he's got these beasts which serve him and they just seem to be overwhelming God's people. How, like, how does a story end? And in chapter 14, we get a window into the end of the story, which is judgment against the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and all the followers of the beast and glorification of those who have stayed faithful to Jesus, even when it was unbelievably difficult, even when it cost them their lives. Let's start. Revelation 14, you can open up your Bible. You can hit the pause button if you want and come back. Uh, Have your Bible, have a notepad, engage, highlight, circle things you don't understand or that you want to come back to. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remain virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. And then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. 
And another, a second angel followed. It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's command and their faith in Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. And then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out from the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel who had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven, and yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyards of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And then the press was trampled outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press up to the horses' bridles for about 180 miles. As we've been moving through Revelation, we've looked at four different ways of reading and therefore interpreting and applying Revelation. And we're going to look at each of these views as we move through each chapter in order to expand our understanding of this very complex and layered book. And we're doing this because many Christians have only been exposed to one view, and that is predominantly the futurist view. So understanding the other views, even if we don't come to be convinced that a different view is um, a more correct uh, hermeneutical lens, interpretational lens through which we read Revelation, even if we aren't convinced of the superiority of another view. um, I think all the views uh, can uh, challenge us to think beyond maybe uh, our reductionistic exposure. So let's look at chapter 14 and trying to understand how the preterists would read this. Now, preterists are those who say Revelation and its prophecies have more or less all taken place, except for the final judgment and final return of Jesus. But everything up to basically chapter 19 happened within a generation of this text originally being given, like in the first century. So although it's written as if things, uh, as if it's written as if, 
some of these things are going to take place in the future. That was from the perspective of those who first got it. And then they did happen during predominantly the Jewish wars of 66 to 73 AD. So according to this view, and actually all the views will agree with this point, that the lamb and the 144,000 is a duplicate scene from chapter seven, right? We've already been exposed to this picture of the lamb with his symbolic symbolically sealed new Israel, the 12 tribes, 12 times 12 is 144 times a thousand, the sense of grand completeness, finality. These first fruits who are here, according to this view, are a specific number, according to the preterists, or at least a symbolic number of those Jewish believers who were killed in the first century. And to speak of them as virgins is not to be taken literally, obviously, be, any more than you would say, well, these are all men. Only men are saved in Jesus, right? <laughs> the, the, the virginity res, um, is a symbolic representation of the fact that they have remained spiritually pure, that they have remained spiritually devoted to Christ. They didn't participate in the corrupt Roman or Jewish temple systems of the first century that participated in the persecution of the early church. This, this, this call that Babylon has fallen is a condemnation of the Jewish nation's corruption. And this fire and sulfur or fire and brimstone, right? That's where we get the term fire and brimstone preacher from. That this is a symbolic sign that this judgment is coming against Jerusalem. And that judgment would be fulfilled with the destruction of the second temple during the Jewish war. And the vision of Christ on the cloud that ends chapter 14, this depicts judgment pertaining to the fall of Jerusalem in the first century. So all of this symbolism gets localized to a very short amount of time, way, way back in the past, somewhere around... Uh, the sixth and seventh a decade of the first century. And so they read this chapter as having been fulfilled during the Jewish wars. What about the historicists? This is the view that says revelation and its prophecies are being slowly fulfilled across the timeline as major historical events are taking place. Well, Again, they would say the lamb and the 144,000, that's a duplicate vision from chapter 7. And what this symbolism represents is the true Christian church, as opposed to the Roman Catholic church and those who are a part of it, which this view says the Roman Catholic church is the beast from the land, the false religion that actually turns people away from a living and true faith. And that these true Christians, the true church, the virgins, were those who kept themselves pure by not participating in the Roman Catholic false religion that played out over centuries and over a millennium. Babylon the fallen is a condemnation of the Roman Catholic church and of the Pope that is seen as kind of a neo-Babylon, a new Babylon that attempts to accrue political and religious power but does so by looking like a lamb, but having the content and speaking like a dragon, like we heard in the last chapter, they localize that judgment on, they, they, they localize that symbol as being a symbol for the Roman Catholic Church. 
And therefore, what's coming down the pipe for the Roman Catholic Church and the adherence um, of uh, within that religious, and they would argue also political system, is fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone. Anyone who cooperates with the Roman Catholic Church stands in threat of judgment. And the vision of Christ in the clouds depicts the judgment that's going to happen to the enemies of God, but with a finer point here, the enemies of God, but yes, even you, Roman Catholic, if you think the Roman Catholic Church as an entity or institution can save you from the wrath of the Lamb, it won't, according to this view, that only those who are fully devoted to Jesus and have rejected Roman Catholic doctrine and systems of practice will be found within Christ's true Israel, the 144,000. Again, numerically not meant to be a a rigidly understood literal interpretation of numbers, but a symbolic representation of a small number of people who have stayed faithful to Jesus. Now, I've been honest and said, I'm not a big fan of the historicist view. And one of the reasons why is it's, interpretational framework is very arbitrary how it tethers these symbols to different historical events and it just over and over and over again beats the dead horse of the roman catholic church is an apostate church and is villainous to the kingdom of christ and so a major interpretational presumption of this view is that the roman catholic church has basically been one of the most devastating and antichrist institutions ever and and will be and uh you know we can have disagreements about roman catholic theology and there's you know there's a reason why i'm not a roman catholic um but i think the view that that most historicists tend to take as it relates to the roman catholic church is a um i i don't think it's a very helpful constructive or even fair view and um I'm not a big fan of it. So I've said this before, but I would, I would want people um, who are Roman Catholic to understand that this view is absolutely designed to come at and against the Roman Catholic church incredibly hard. But I know, and, and I, I mean, I know personally, not just abstractly, I know many people within uh, the Roman Catholic church who have a sincere, authentic faith, who are surrendered to Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why I don't accept the historicist perspective on uh, not just Revelation, but the Roman Catholic Church, uh, broadly speaking, and in the way that it kind of characterizes it. Okay, let's look at the futurist view. This is the view that says end times, tribulation, seven-year seven tribulation, rapture of the church is going to usher that in. There's going to be just this um, cascading and accelerating destruction at a global level, plagues and war. And um, it's just going to be, the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And uh, the antichrist and the false religion is going to rise up during this time and lead people away from Christ. And all of the prophecies of revelation, the vast majority of them are going to happen during that small window between the rapture of the church and Jesus' second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And so how they understand this chapter is that, yes, the Lamb and the 144,000 represent Jesus and the true church. And this 144,000 represents the believers, though, uh, specifically who come to Christ during the great, the great tribulation. 
This view says when the church gets raptured, there will still be faithful witnesses like the two witnesses we read earlier in the book of Revelation who will still share the gospel. People will come to Christ during this seven-year tribulation and their number will be 144,000. That's what's being depicted here according to this view. And again, they're virgins in that they didn't participate in the corrupt antichrist system that's going to be instituted during these end of days. Babylon has fallen, is a condemnation on the antichrist's regime and the false church that rises to lead people away from true and genuine worship. Fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone are for those who worship the beast in his image, full unmitigated wrath. The futurist view tends to take the um, details of this judgment pretty literally, and that will get um, wedded with um, further depictions of final judgment hellfire uh, later in the book of Revelation. And the vision of Christ on the clouds depicts the judgment against the wicked, wicked at the battle of Armageddon. So they actually see this part of chapter 14 as happening on earth. It's not the final judgment. This is the final battle and a symbolic representation of the battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to. And lastly, the idealist view. This is the view that says the book of Revelation is best understood as a template that shows us what happens in any age when the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world begin to collide. And when God's kingdom breaks out and there's a counter pushback by the kingdoms and forces of this world with kind of the shadowy spiritual forces of darkness behind some of the kingdoms of this world, some of the political and religious um, systems um, pushing back against the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So we read Revelation as symbolic because it is relevant to every Christian in every age. The lamb and the 144,000 represent Jesus and the true church. And this represents all believers who bear the mark of Jesus and the father's name on their forehead, right? Instead of the mark of the beast. We're getting a picture here of those who have been sealed by the spirit because of sincere devotion and allegiance to Jesus. And there were virgins in the fact that in their day and age, whenever there was a temptation to participate in systems that were antichrist or that were idolatrous, they said no. They stayed faithful and worshipped Jesus. Babylon has fallen here is understood as a condemnation against any human society that is organized against God. And it's a declaration that they're going to come to an end. History isn't just going to cycle through like we go through good times and bad times. And sometimes we honor God as a society and sometimes we don't. And it's just going to be that way forever and ever and ever and ever. No. Babylon has fallen. There will be a final declaration. And at some point there will be a final human society that is organized against God. And that will be brought to an end. And then the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will be established fully here on earth. And fire and brimstone await those who have partnered with antichrist systems of power and idolatry. Judgment is coming for those who in small ways and big ways have said, I'm not going to live as if Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to acknowledge that truth. I'm going to live as if I'm Lord or as if some other God or deity is Lord or some other power or priority is Lord, but I've given myself to another system 
another call of allegiance. And Revelation makes it very clear that to those who have made that decision, judgment is coming. The vision of Christ on the cloud depicts that final judgment that according to this view, we've already seen foreshadowed in chapter 6, chapter 11. Again, the idealist view sees these visions as symbolic, as a cycling through this symbolism in order to remind us and to help us to see it from different angles. And what we're seeing here is in, in really vivid ways that a final serious judgment and punishment is coming to those who are um, not yielding to Christ's lordship and instead yielding to an alternative God or idol. Now I get that when you're reading through revelation, you're reading a chapter like this for some of you, you're thinking I might as well be reading the Bible upside down. I have no idea what to make of this. Maybe that overview of the four different views is helpful, but again, I really believe that not only is all scripture God breathed, but it's useful for teaching. It shows us how we should be living. It gives us tools through which if we meditate on them and pray through them and discuss them and begin to work them out in our lives, we realize, oh, scripture is meant to be useful. It's meant to equip us for every good work. It's meant to teach us how to live. So how do we take a passage like this that is so symbolically loaded and use it, leverage it um, in order to live more faithfully for Jesus here and now? Well, this is where I think the idealist view comes in and is really, really helpful because regardless of whether or not you think the idealist view is correct in terms of the best way to view and read Revelation, it's absolutely incredibly useful to pass through it when you're going through Revelation, when you're coming across these chapters, because it does serve as a powerful bridge to discipleship. Because what it does is it forces you to look at the symbols and the themes and the patterns that you see playing out in Revelation and say, what am I noticing? How does that line, how does that overlap with what I'm walking through, what my church is walking through, what my nation is walking through right now. And so you don't have to be, you know, all chips all in with the idealist view or to say, I'm going to die on this hill and say, I absolutely think the idealist view is the one that is correct as in terms of reading revelation, because if you just use the idealist view for personal discipleship, you will gain a ton out of revelation right? I mean, look at this chapter, look at all the ways, and this isn't all the ways, this is just a few, the ways that you can leverage the symbolism and themes of this chapter to challenge yourself. Christ's rule, his authority over the powers is on full display in this chapter. His protection of those who have entrusted themselves to him is never called into question in this chapter. But think about the last two chapters that have gone to great lengths to talk about and to frame the very real, very serious threat of the dragon and the dragon's beasts. And yet we get to chapter 14, and there's a son of man standing on the clouds. And that's not like some airy fairy, oh, he's standing in the clouds playing some harps. He's in a position of power. 
He's in a position of authority. He is over those powers which would seek to make us believe they're actually in charge. What, a, what an encouraging message. How often do we need to be reminded that Jesus is on the throne? That from our perspective, it looks like maybe our world or the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but Jesus is in charge and he has protected us. He will bring us through to a glorious future. What does it mean to live a life that sings a new song of praise? It means that as Christians, our lives shouldn't just be a mimicry of what we see around us. That we should be asking the Spirit of God to do a work in us so that the character of Christ is formed in who we are more and more and more. The mind of Christ, the hands hands and feet of Christ, the heart of Christ. That Christ begins to live a new creation life in and through me. There's a uniqueness to who Jeff is, and that's awesome. But I'm here to reveal and to grow into the character of Jesus as the Spirit does does its work in me. And the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in creative, beautiful, um, challenging ways in my life. I'm not called to stay where I am as a Christian. Oh, I've been a Christian for two years. I kind of get it. I've done enough church. Eh, Yeah, I get it. Now I just go into cruise control. No, sing a new song. What does it mean to sing a new song in our lives to God, in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids, in our jobs or in our our vocations? There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of grist for the mill. I love this chapter that it reminds us that Christianity is active allegiance to Jesus versus just easy believism, right? Christianity is not, oh, when I was like 12, I said a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart so my sins are forgiven and now I've just kind of moved through my life doing what I want. But like, I still believe in God. No, no, time out, stop. Like, Christianity is active allegiance to Jesus. Yeah, that might have started with a prayer, but it needs to continue with a prayer every day. Your will be done. Your kingdom come in my life. The passage says that these redeemed of the lamb follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's a good definition of what it means to be a true Christian, a true disciple of Jesus. They follow the lamb wherever they go. How different that is than people who think that Christianity is just a bunch of beliefs and then you say a prayer and then you try and be a good person and that's kind of it. That is such a a bastardized vision of the Christian life. The Christian life is active allegiance to Jesus in the face of other powers and temptations that would say to us, no, worship yourself, worship this person, worship this thing. This is what you should be centering your life around. Christianity says, no, you center your life around Jesus because he is true, he is king, he is Lord. And all of history, including your life, is moving towards an endgame that features him. Great warning in verse 8 on the dangers of becoming drunk on hedonism. It's not just sexual immorality, but it's hedonism. It's any lifestyle where instead of being devoted to glorifying God, in all that we do and obeying God and trusting God, we can get, it's very easy, especially in our culture to get tempted and pulled towards a life where the values of 
pleasure and ease and what works for us and what's easy for us and what's expedient for us, that those things get centered. And there's a danger here where we're given this symbolic vision where you can become drunk on that, right? You can become intoxicated with hedonism. Pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is a gift from God in the right context. But pleasure as an operating principle, the pursuit of pleasure as an operating principle for your life is idolatrous, it's sinful, and it's going to lead you down paths that are um, unbelievably destructive. So we have to surrender our pleasure and our pursuit of pleasure to God and say, God, this is what I want. This is what I think would be best, but I'm going to honor you and I'm going to ask that your will be done in my life. And of course, you can't read this chapter without having to face the terrible reality of Jesus's final judgment against those who resist his mercy and his rule. The New Testament makes this clear. Revelation makes this clear. Um, it's uh, it's tempting to want to jump over it. And we will talk a little bit more about this and some of the nuanced ways to approach this and understand this as we move deeper into Revelation. But for now, I think it's valuable just to sit sometimes with the reality that judgment is coming. That There are short, medium, long-term, and eternal consequences to living in such a way that you're rejecting or ignoring God. Or that you're ignoring the one to whom God the Father has pointed and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We say, well, I don't believe in the Jesus stuff. I believe God's big and God's everywhere and God's the universe and God, you know, I have my own conception of God. Revelation says, judgment is coming for those who are not found in Jesus. Not to those who are bad people or to those who don't go to church. You can go to church and not be saved. You can be a good person and not be saved. You can be a God-fearing person on one level and not be saved. Final judgment is coming for those who have rejected the offer of the Lamb, Jesus, to turn from their self-centered life and to center their lives on him and to ask for his forgiveness and grace. So even if you're not totally swayed by by the idealist view, you can see how this is a way of reading and moving through Revelation, which pushes the weight of this text past trying to figure out the X's and O's of end time timelines and uh, who the Antichrist is and when's this going to happen. It pushes deeper, way beyond that to say, how is this speaking to me? How is this challenging me? How is this revealing Jesus to me in a way that snaps me out of my stupor and drives me to more focused, serious prayer, drives me to more devoted engagement with the text, drives me to more devoted deepening fellowship with other people, sharing my faith winsomely and carefully and thoughtfully with other people, serving God's church. That's what Revelation is there to do, to inspire us to live more faithfully to Jesus, even when the world around us 
is offering so many counterfeit paths. So as you go into this new week, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you sing a new song of praise to God. May you follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and may you fear God and give him glory, worshiping him who made heaven and earth, and he who is victorious on your behalf. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. And we'll see you soon.